young 40s and 50s, whatever we call it now, um, <laughs> to the Valentine's dessert competition, whatever we call it now, just know you're going to not win, but we hope that you'll come and present your dessert. Dave Stanley has a stranglehold on this competition, and uh, it's a dynasty. Some claim it's rigged, but we won't go there. Um, tonight, we're going to continue our series on the Minor Prophets, looking at the shortest book in the Old Testament, Obadiah. And, and as we've been talking about throughout this series, these minor prophets are not minor in the message that they're giving. The message is for all of us, and I hope that we're seeing that as we go through this series. We are the new Israel. We are the ones that have been grafted in. We are the kingdom citizens that, that all these minor prophets have been talking about, all that they were foretelling and looking forward to. We're here. We're living in this day and time. This is a book that's a series of poems pronouncing judgment on Edom which is a nation that neighbored Israel on the other side of the Dead Sea. Now, Edom is unique in that it had a shared ancestry with Israel. Both belonged to the family of Abraham. You might remember that Abraham and Sarah were the parents of Isaac, who along with Rebekah gave birth to Jacob and Esau. And you remember there was always this rivalry with Jacob and Esau. In fact, it began even before they were born. Even in the womb, there was this struggle between the two. I want you to notice verses 22 and following of Genesis chapter 25. It says, But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is so, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body, and one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. When her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now the first came forth red, all over like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau. Afterward, his brother came forth with his hand, holding on to Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. Now if you go to verse 27 and following, it tells of how Jacob convinced Esau to sell his birthright for a bowl of appetizing stew. I think we probably all learned that story when we were in uh, you know, children's Bible class. If you know anything about the birthright, you know that it is an inheritance that naturally belonged to the firstborn son. And although Jacob and Esau were twins, Esau was born first. And this caused quite a bit of jealousy. This is kind of where the rivalry all began. And by the way, have you ever noticed how this scenario plays out over and over again in Scripture. How you have this rivalry between brothers. And God chooses one over the other or others. He chooses frequently the younger one, right? And he uses him to, to bless the others. We see that God often chose one brother in order to be a blessing to humanity. Prime example of this would be Joseph, right? You think about Joseph and how he was chosen and how that caused a lot of rivalry, right? There was bitter jealousy over Joseph being chosen by God. God's choosing of the younger brother often brought a rivalry or a struggle. And that takes us back to Jacob and Esau. We see that as the firstborn son, Esau was to receive a double portion of the father's inheritance. 
This would include land and animals and other valuables. The birthright also secured the firstborn as the head of the household after the father died. He would assume that position. And so Esau traded all the privileges for momentary satisfaction for this, this tasty stew. And as he pigged out on Jacob's tasty stew, he was making a decision that would affect him for the rest of his life. So Jacob and Esau would later become Israel and Edom. Are you following so far? Maybe you know where we're going with this. So they later become Edom and, uh, and Israel, which also became the names of their families that descended from them. The two nations continued this sibling rivalry. It was, it was a tense relationship, just as it was between the two brothers. You can go back to Numbers chapter 20, verses 14 through 20 sometime, and you can get a picture of this tension. But nevertheless, the two nations shared a common bond that could not be denied. And that bond was betrayed in the tragic events of Jerusalem's fall to Babylon. You can read about this in 2 Kings chapter 25. When Babylon invaded and destroyed uh, Jerusalem, Edom took advantage by plundering the Israelite cities and capturing and killing other Israelite refugees. And we see in other prophetic books that God held Israel's neighbors accountable for this kind of violence, which brings us to Obadiah. This minor prophet is sent on the scene to pronounce woe on the nation of Edom. And there are really two sections to this little book. You have verses 1 through 14, which contain the accusations against Edom, specifically for their pride and their self-exaltation. Not only did the Edomites live high in the desert rocks, they also believed that they were superior to those around them. They had a high opinion of, their, of themselves. They believed that they were above others. And if you look at verses 3 and 4 of Obadiah, it reads, The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to earth? Though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. The pride that led the Edomites to standing idly by while the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem, also participating in that destruction, that's what Obadiah is approaching here. That is what he is dealing with. God is promising to humble Edom. He will bring them down from their heights and destroy them. As they had done to Israel, so it will be done to them. Now, if you notice verses 10 and following, it reads like this. It says, because of violence to your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame and you will be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you too were as one of them. Do not gloat over your brother's day, the day of his misfortune, and do not rejoice over the sons of Judah in the day of their destruction. Yes, do not boast in the day of their distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their disaster. Yes, you do not gloat over their calamity in the day of their disaster and do not loot their wealth in the day of their disaster. Do not stand at the fork of the road to cut down their fugitives and do not imprison their survivors in the day of their distress. In other words, you are not to treat your brother this way. You people 
have mistreated your brother long enough. And now you're going to pay for it. But what's interesting is if you continue reading there and you look at verse 15, things tend to kind of change course a little bit, right? Look at verse 15. For the day of the Lord draws near on Edom. No, it doesn't say that. The fear of the Lord draws near on all the nations. Now all of a sudden, things twist a little bit, and now we're not just talking about Edom. We're talking about all the nations, right? Why is that? Well, because... Edom is going to stand as an example to all the nations that have thought themselves as being too full of themselves and too prideful. God's going to bring them down too. We're talking about all nations. This connects the first half of the book with the second half of the book. Verses 16 through 21 is Obadiah announcing that theme that we see throughout the Minor Prophets, and that is the day of the Lord, right? The coming judgment, and it's going to happen. Obadiah broadens his focus. Not only will judgment come upon Edom, but on all prideful nations. In other words, if you act like Edom, here's what's going to happen to you. You're going to endure the same kind of destruction. Notice verse 16. Because just as you drank on my holy mountain, all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and swallow and become as if they had never existed. God is going to use Edom as an example going to make an example out of them they will serve as an image of the pride and fall of all nations and you know what's interesting and i don't think coincidental is that the word edom in hebrew has exactly it's spelled with the exact same letters as the word humanity or adam edom's rise and fall is really a parable within the book of obadiah a parable of how god will one day oppose pride and self-exaltation among all the nations in the day of the Lord. But, as is the case that we read throughout the Minor Prophets, there is hope, right? I mean, throughout the Minor Prophets, we're going to see this theme over and over again, that there is this judgment that is being handed down by God, but that's not the final say. There's hope, there's a silver lining, there's something yet to come. And we see this. We see this in Obadiah. Remember the conclusion of the two books that came before Obadiah, Joel and Amos, right? We talked about them, and if you're paying attention, you probably remember that Joel had painted a picture of what would happen after the day of the Lord against all the nations. He said that all who humbled themselves and called upon his name would be delivered. And at the close of the book of Amos, God promises to restore David's line and build a new kingdom that would include Israel, of course, but would also include who? Edom. And so the book of Obadiah has been placed right after Joel and Amos to expand on these previous promises. There's a reason it's right here. The book concludes with hope. Look at this hope, starting in verse 17. But on Mount Zion, there will be those who escape, and it will be holy. And the house of Jacob will possess their possessions then the house of Jacob will be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, but the house of Esau will be a stubble. And they will set them on fire and consume them, so that there will be no survivor of the house of Esau. For the Lord has spoken. Then those of the Negev will possess the mountain of Esau, and those of, of Shephelah, the Philistine plain, also possess the territory of Ephraim and the territory of Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead and the exiles of this host of the sons of Israel who are among the Canaanites as far as Zarephath 
and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad will possess the cities of the Negev. The deliverers will ascend Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. A faithful remnant will be restored and repopulate this restored kingdom. From Jerusalem, God's kingdom will expand to include all the territory and all the nations around Israel. Remember when we talked about that last week? That others will be grafted into the kingdom. That, that Israel, the, the, the Israelites, I should say, will no longer be the chosen people of God. That if they want to be considered chosen, they're going to have to do like anyone else and accept the free gift of grace that comes through Jesus Christ. And so, here we have this future kingdom being talked about where it will include all the nations. Do you see this bigger picture? God chose Israel, and this caused tension between Israel and his brother. But God chose Israel not for Israel's sake, but for his brother's sake as well, just as he has done throughout the Bible, right? Notice chapter 23 and verse 7 of the book of Deuteronomy. It reads, you shall not detest an Edomite, for he is your brother. You shall not detest an Egyptian because you were an alien in his land. Did you catch that? Do, do not detest an Edomite. Why? Because they're your brother. And do you see the symbolism here? God says, this is my chosen child, and this child is not chosen. And the child that is not chosen will despise the one that is chosen. And surely we can see how this would happen. One brother is blessed, he's protected, he's been sustained, he's been provided for. What's so special about him? That's not fair. You can see the Edomite standing back and saying, he doesn't deserve that. Why is this brother getting all of the attention from God while we sit over here? In other words, it says... God's unchosen hates his brother. And God says to Israel, don't hate them back. You catch that? Don't detest an Edomite. They hate you, don't hate them back. They are your brother. In other words, there's going to come a day when my people will include your brother. How exciting is that? There's going to come a day when my people will not just be you, who are chosen, but rather it would include the Edomites, the Gentiles, everyone, right? It's no longer a narrow kingdom in which only those of Jewish descent have access. Remember the words of Peter, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you see the message? You were an Edomite. All of you here that are as a child of God now, who accepted that free gift of grace, who became a child of God through baptism, you were once like Edom. You were not chosen, but now you are. We are God's people. We belong to Him. This story is our story. We were once not a people. We were once outside looking in, but not anymore. Now we belong. And what does this mean? Well, first of all, it means that we win. I've been trying to encourage you to read bigger chunks of the Bible this year. 
instead of hunting and pecking our way through Scripture, trying to get us to be a people who read bigger chunks, who take things in context. And if you read the Bible from cover to cover, you're going to notice that there is one thread that you see throughout, and that is a thread or a theme of redemption, right? And if you follow the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, what you see in Revelation is the happy ending for those who are chosen, right? For those of us who have been grafted into the kingdom, for those of us who are Christians, who are children of God, Eden is restored. There is a new Eden, a new paradise, right? In fact, the theme of Revelation is we win. That's the happy ending for those of us that are victorious in Christ. We are afforded the privilege of living with God for all eternity in His kingdom. But all of this means something else as well. It means that the chosen child is always despised by his brothers. You get that? Now you're the chosen child and you're going to be despised by your brothers. Jacob's family was always despised by Esau's family. As God's chosen people, we will always be despised by the world. Look at 1 John 3 and 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. It's a great love that God has showered upon us. It is great to know that we are His chosen, that we are a part of His kingdom. And it's so great a love that the world just doesn't get it. And we can gripe and we can complain about that and we can, we can yell at the TV when we see things on the news that, 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 that irritate us. Even in our own backyard, we see things going on that just totally and completely gets us irate. But the world's always been the world. And the world's always going to be the world. And while it may seem like Christianity is, is, is under fire more today than ever, maybe it seems like the world is more anti-Christian than ever, it's always been this way, it's always going to be this way because they don't understand the truth. They don't know God. They don't know our Father. And all the while, you know what God is telling us? Don't hate your brother. Don't detest an Edomite. Why? Well, because they're your brother, but because you once were them, right? You used to be like them. Am I my brother's keeper? Absolutely you are. Without question. We have no right to detest our brother. If you look further down in 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 and following, it says, For this is the message which, we, which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother, and for that reason did he slay him, because his deeds were evil, and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. You can get all upset, but what are you surprised about? It's always been this way, and it's always going to be this way. But do you see the comparison? We shouldn't be like Cain. We should be like his brother. Cain was jealous, and he let, he let it lead to sin. Abel was righteous, and as God's people, we are holy and righteous. And for this reason, you shouldn't be surprised when the world hates you. It's always been that way. The older evil brother despised the younger righteous one over and over again. And so it is with us. The world or Edom will despise God's chosen ones. What are we supposed to do about it? 
Remember what God told the Israelites back in Deuteronomy chapter 23. You shall not detest an Edomite, for he is your brother. You shall not detest an Egyptian because you were an alien in his land. Do not abhor the world, for they are your brother. Look at Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 16. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind. Don't be like an Edomite. Don't think of yourself to be prideful and aloof, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In other words, let God deal with the evil people of this world. Let him deal with those who choose to live outside of his will and outside of Christ. That's not your job. It's not your job to, to have revenge or to take vengeance upon them. That's not your job. That's not your responsibility. Wrath and judgment belong to God. The day of the Lord is coming. And there won't be anyone who escapes it for those who live outside of Christ. God's people are to love, not hate. Why should we love the world? Because they're your brother. Because that used to be you. And what's the better option? You think you're going to bring anybody to Christ by hating them? You think that works? One thing that I've seen in 20 years of ministry is you slam a door on someone, you're not going to get it back open. Very seldom. So if you're going to err on any side, err on love, right? Because at least you leave the door cracked. At least you have an opportunity to reach someone. God says, vengeance is mine. I'm going to repay. There's going to be a day that's going to come where I'm going to, I'm going to exact all things that have been done wrong. Nobody's going to escape the punishment that is due them. But that's my job. That's my responsibility, not yours. Your responsibility is to love because these people are your brother. Here's the deal. You were chosen for their sake, not yours. Again, we see that same theme throughout the Bible, don't we? That, the, the, that one brother was chosen why was he chosen? Not just for his sake. He was chosen for the sake of the others, right? And that's the way it always has been. God chooses the younger brother to be a blessing to humanity. And the same is true with us. We have been chosen to be a blessing to others. The only hope that those outside of Christ that are our brothers and sisters have is by us being the chosen and being salt of the earth and lights in the world to spread the gospel message, to be the, the agency by which the story of salvation is to be told. That's the only hope. Because if we're not going to tell them the truth, then who is? If we're not going to spread the gospel, who is? We gripe and complain about all the conflicting messages that are out there concerning truth and all these things and error and doctrinal error and all those things. What are we doing about it? If we love them, if they're our brother, and we, of all people, should understand what it's like to be an Edomite. Because we've been there. And we've been plucked from the fires of hell. I realize there's some things in this world that 
that get your goat, so to speak. I know there's some things that irritate you, some things that drive you nuts, probably. I mean, I think some of us need to turn off the news and just go do something, right? But I know that there's stuff that drives us crazy out there. And to make matters worse, it seems that so many people are mocking Christianity at every turn, thumbing their noses at God, and it makes us so angry we could spit nails, right? Like the minor prophet Jonah that we're going to talk about in this series. Maybe if we're honest, we kind of hope they get what's coming to them. But we cannot forget that the people we're so angry about and with are our brothers and sisters. We cannot forget that we are chosen and they're not. We are children of God. We came through that that seed of Abraham. We have a great inheritance. We are the chosen brother. And it's our responsibility to be the hands and feet of Jesus. To be that mouthpiece of truth and to spread the gospel message. You were an Edomite and you were saved because not of anything marvelous that you did, but because of the grace of God. You have nothing to brag about. You can't be like the Edomites and stand high above everyone else and exalt yourself and brag. You have nothing to brag about. You did nothing to bring this about. You are the beneficiary of a great God who wants you in heaven. You were chosen, though, to say. Which means that that Muslim that you despise, that Hindu living in India, the atheist living right here in Abilene, they're your brother. And it's your responsibility not to judge them, not to take vengeance or revenge upon them, but to love them enough to tell them the truth, right? Because in the end, that's what they'll be judged by. It's your responsibility to be your brother's keeper. And you do that by sharing the gospel message in love in the hope that they too will come into the kingdom. I hope you see the beauty in these minor prophets and the words that they're speaking even to us today. Because the message is not some relic of the past. It definitely has application for us today. Maybe you're sitting here tonight and you need the prayers and support of this church family. Maybe you have something that uh, has been on your heart you want to confess. You need... You need us to pray with you. Certainly we want to do that. Maybe, maybe you're ready to, to study the Bible with someone, to learn what it means to, to be a citizen of this kingdom we've been talking about. Maybe you're ready to put on Christ in baptism, become one of his chosen people. We want to help you with that. As we say every week, don't leave here without being right with God. And when you do leave here tonight, go out and change the world. If you have a need tonight, Sawyer's going to lead us in a song. Come now as we stand, as we sing.